It's not. So this is the last sermon that will be here for our Advent Christmas series, The Thrill of Hope. Last Sunday, Kevin Crawford was here, and, and graciously, uh, we swapped pulpits. And so I'm, I'm not sure how many of our people have now migrated there or how many have migrated here, but hopefully we're, we're about the same no matter what. Uh, next week, we will be at, uh, on the BGSU campus for our Christmas Eve service. And so that's at 4 p.m. Um, in Olds Camp 101. And so that'll be on Facebook, and we'll probably push out an email to you this week to remind you. Um, so don't forget that we will not be here on Christmas Eve. You are welcome to be here if you want to be. Uh, but that will be a silent devotional time for you because we will all be at three churches in one over at, uh, on the BGSU campus. And so I want to make sure I invite you to that, which means that this is the last sermon that we're going to have here in this series. And so uh, previous weeks we've talked about Jesus being uh, the gospel. And last week Jesus was uh, our king. And today uh, we're talking about Jesus as our God. And so we've been in Colossians 1 for this whole series as this one chapter of Scripture unpacks all of these truths for us. And so I've said before that uh, the two high holidays of religious uh, activity in America are Easter and Christmas. At Easter, we ask, what did Jesus do? And then we learn about the crucifixion and the resurrection. At Christmas, we say, who is this Jesus? And why do we celebrate his coming? And so uh, what we're attempting to do is not recapture the magic of a season, but the majesty of the Christ. And that's what we've spent this month doing. That's what we'll close up next week on Saturday at 4, is we'll kind of wrap a nice bow on the whole thing. And what we said as well is that this is a difficult season for a lot of people. That the Christmas season has its own stresses. It's financially stressful for everybody because um, as much as we think we're going to budget to buy presents for everyone, we don't always do that rightly. And so there's financial stress of going, oh, one more thing I have to get. There's emotional stress of, being far from family, of uh, remembering an acute loss from the past. There's the familial relational stress of not everybody has the best relationship with everybody all the time. And then we're all thrown into a big fishbowl together once or twice a year where we have to interact. I made the joke uh, last week, and uh, they sort of laughed, that 2016 provided a whole lot of interesting dinner topics. Uh, And so if you can't wait to get around your Christmas dinner table with a extended family and talk about politics, then you can start that line anytime you want. It's just one of those years where you're like, okay, I guess we'll do this if we have to. And so two things we learned from that is one, we're sensitive to the fact that not everybody thinks this is the most magical time of the year. For some people, this is the time we just want to get through. And as a result, we're sensitive to that. And we speak a little quieter and we recognize that, hey, sometimes people don't need a, hey, cheer up. They need a, let's remember the bigger things at play here, and let me love you right where you are. So today as we finish up our portion of this series before we get to Christmas Eve next week, we're going to be in Colossians 1, verse 15. And like I said, this is, uh, Christmas is about Jesus and who Jesus is. In a sense, Christmas is an invitation to us to come and see what God has done. When the baby is in the manger, it's a come and see what God has done moment. So the shepherds watch and the kings, they come, and and this is us. And so throughout the next 30 minutes or so, that's the thing I want to be reverberating in our heads. This God, this king, this savior that we follow, come and see what he's done. Colossians 1. It says, he, talking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. 
He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the, the dead, so that in everything, in everything, he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Christmas is about the doctrine of incarnation. The doctrine of incarnation, that, that God was made human. This is Emmanuel, right? God with us. God doesn't say, here's a religious set of rules, come find me, follow these steps and find me. God says, I will come find you to drag you out of religion. But Christmas isn't about doctrine, it's about how it makes our lives different. It's our annual reminder that there's something greater happening. It's our annual wake-up call to go, wait, my life should be different if I believe that this thing is true. Verse 16 says, he was not first created for by him all things were created. By him all things were created. He wasn't a created being. Jesus didn't, um, wasn't the res- God's response to a need. And God goes, well, you know what? I really got to figure this out. So why don't I just create Jesus and let Jesus fix it? This says that Jesus was present before creation. Which would change something about if we get that wrong. There are some uh, different nuanced beliefs. And some people would say, well, God created Jesus. And then Jesus created the spirit. And, and that creates some problems because that's not what the scripture says the bible says that jesus was actually in existence before the creation of the universe this is important the word there is primogenitor it's the culture understood this their culture got this so if you had five sons the firstborn in that culture got the full inheritance it wasn't like now where you'd split it 20 percent each and you try to keep everybody happy so that they don't take the grandkids you know you're like Firstborn gets everything. So if you have five sons, there's one who gets everything and the other four get nothing. This is the idea of firstborn, which is why it says firstborn. That was the culture. This is why Cain and Abel had some issues. You look through the scripture, Jacob and Esau, there's some issues. Why? Because you want to be firstborn. Because firstborn is on equal footing with the father. Because whatever belongs to the father belongs to the firstborn son. In a sense, they co-own it together. They're in it together and they have the same wealth on the day the firstborn exists. This is important because the scripture is saying that Jesus is God's firstborn, and yet he existed before all of creation, which is to say they are one and the same. They are equal. They are co-equal, and they co-inhabit this whole thing. Verse 19, it says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. All the fullness of God in a man. Like, I don't know if we stop long enough to actually think about what this is trying to tell us. We sing the song, and we kind of move on, and we open the presents, and we put away the tree, and we get back, and we hope for spring. And all of God's fullness exists in the person of Jesus, in the human being, Jesus. The omniscient God, the all-knowing God exists in Jesus. The omnipotent, all-powerful God exists in Jesus. The omnitemporal, the God who is outside of time, that exists in Jesus. It says that all the fullness of God is present in Christ. This is mind-boggling assertions being made by Paul. Sometimes we don't even stop to think about just how revolutionary and mind-blowing this is. When we was first married to uh, Steph, we took a road trip to her uh, college town in the panhandle of texas so we got in the car in san antonio and and nine hours later uh, we were still in texas god bless america and we pulled into uh, canyon texas 
She went to West Texas A&M University. It is a dot on a map. And we pull into Canyon. We, we go to the house that we're going to stop at, stay at for the week. We get out of the car. And I go, whoa, whoa, what is that smell? She goes, what? I, I said, the, the smell that, like, I'm surrounded by cattle? Like, what is this? It's, it's an insane, strong, like, knock-you-over kind of stockyard sort of smell. Oh, that? She goes, that's just Hereford. It's like, well, it's Hereford. Oh, it's the town, one town over. Oh. Y- yeah, but, I mean, this is horrific. Like, it's not always like this. She goes, no, gosh, oh, I'd hate for you to think that. It's not always like this. I said, well, okay, well, why is it like this now? She goes, only when the wind blows a certain direction. Oh. How often does the wind blow this direction? She goes, all the time, all the time, (laughs) pretty much all the time. It always smells like this. But she goes, here's the thing. You'll get used to it. It's just Hereford. You'll get used to it. Sure enough, end of the week, you know, I don't even smell it anymore. I'm walking around. I just stink to high heaven and nobody cares. Because you know why? Everybody else smells that way too. You you just, it doesn't even phase you. You just kind of get used to it. When we first came here, we, we spent like a week telling you people how incredible Bowling Green was. We're like, it's beautiful. It's green and it's lush and it's like a postcard and the houses and the trees and you have no idea. And you all looked at us like we were aliens. We're like, it's so ugly and it's small and it's terrible and we don't like it. And we're, no, you're used to it. We come from a place where a tree that's over 10 feet tall is like something to be worshipped and preserved. And we have these incredible trees here and the grass is green. It's not brown and crunchy. There's no stickers in it. No one's getting bitten by mosquitoes all summer. It's not 120 degrees. We're just like... This is heaven, and you guys went, really? Why? Because you've lived here for a long time. It's not new to you anymore. It's like, yeah, whatever. Sure, it's 68 degrees on an August night, and you're cooking out and sitting in your backyard. If you sit out in an August night in San Antonio, you cook. That's how that works. You just sizzle in the backyard, and then you go inside, and you hate the... it's, It's different. And yet, you looked at us like we're crazy. Like, really? Do you... And then a few people told me this. They said, you know what? We actually started looking at our own town a little differently. It helped to have you show up because it reminded us to look and and appreciate some things. And so I started driving a little slower and I started looking at this house and I I did notice the grass was green and I I did notice that people were friendly and wow, that was kind of refreshing. That's the reality with Christmas is we get so used to it that we forget. The mind-blowing truth that God and Jesus coexist with the Spirit before the creation of the world and that God has a plan to save us and he sends the fullness of himself in the form of Jesus to earth. We take that for granted. Paul is laying out things that should astound us, that should quiet us, that should make us go, whoa, come and see what the Lord has done. If we take another look at the truth and If this truth is real to us, then I would say three things should happen in our lives. The first thing is it should reorder the way we see the world. It should reorder our very lives. Verse 18 says that he does this so that in everything he might have supremacy. Jesus comes that in everything he might have supremacy. If Jesus is God and the fullness of God, then that reorders our life. He can't just be an accessory or a hobby. Quilting is a hobby. Working on cars is a hobby. Jesus isn't a hobby. He doesn't put himself out to be a hobby. Hey, do your thing and then sometimes pay attention to me and it'll make your life fuller. He says, I am the fullness 
Bible claims that Jesus was God's son, that he lived a sinless life, that he died for our sins, and then he rose from the dead. In doing so, he conquered death. And then he invites us in believing in him into eternal life. The Bible claims that. If this is true, it reorders our lives. It's as if I told you that you had a disease right now. You have uromycetosis, a very, very serious illness. Don't Google it. The Seinfeld episode, so don't, don't do that. Um, but you have uromycetosis. You have four weeks to live. And I have the cure. No football. Can't watch football. And no chocolate. No alcohol. Sorry, Christmas. Good luck getting through your family gathering now. And a couple, I mean, just what, what do you like the most? I'm going to just say whatever you like the most. Whatever thing you eat the most, whatever, whatever show you like the most. Can't watch it. That's the cure. The cure is you just, it's just a weird thing. And whatever you like the most, if you just don't do that, you'd be cured. It's life-saving, though. Your four weeks to live, nope. Regular lifespan, restored. If you'll just follow that one rule, whatever it is you like the most, you just can't do it anymore. And if I offered that to you with your uh, life-threatening condition, and you went, gosh, I don't know, this show on Netflix is pretty good. You'd be crazy, right? If I'm offering you a life-saving treatment, you, you would take it. And yet what we do with Jesus, what we do with Christianity, is we look at it and we focus on the restrictions, not on the salvation. Gosh, but if I, if I follow this Christianity thing, if I really actually do what it says I'm, I'm supposed to do, you know, I, I can't do this and I can't do that. We get all stuck on restrictions and regulations in the Bible as if that's the path to salvation rather than looking at the fact that he gives us salvation and he goes, by the way, here's the best way to live it out. And so many of us don't even live the fullness of Christianity because we're a little bit afraid of the restrictions. And so we, we haven't reordered our lives. We've actually put Jesus in his little cubby as a hobby, an accessory to our days, because we want to keep doing the things we do. Here's the thing. We're, we're, we're concerned about restrictions and regulations, but they got nothing going on that we wouldn't rather have. The restrictions don't stifle us. They save us. So you're saying if I do right things, I'm, I, that's where salvation is? If I just do enough rights? No, no, no. Right? The Bible says nobody earns heaven, but Jesus sends heaven and goes, now here's the road, follow this. I was driving, uh, I don't know what day it was this week, where there was like a light dusting of snow, right? So no plows, nobody's out. And there's this little street between Pearl and Wooster, Winfield. It's this little windy neighborhood road, but it gets us from one to the other. I drive it every day. And yet when there's a light blanket of snow, I can't see where the road stops and the yard begins, where this road stops and there's like a, there's a little thing in the middle of the street, a planter. And, and so you have to be careful because if you don't know where it is, it's just white. There, there's no markings, there's no lines, there's no curbs, it's just white. You know, so after I pulled out of that guy's front flower bed, I was back on the road and we're all good. And you say, yeah, but restrictions, I don't want regulations in my life. Don't tell me I can't have 12 drinks or don't ca- tell me I can't, well, Sometimes restrictions are in place to save us. Nobody wants to ride down the highway with no speed limit, no lines, and no center dividing. Nobody wants that. We all want there to be a yellow line in the middle and white lines between the lanes. We want there to be a posted line, a speed limit. Why? 
we want regulation so that we can all be safe. And when it comes to Scripture, when it comes to the Bible, what we focus on are these, these little restrictions that aren't even restrictions because God says you're free to live your life to find the fullness that's in there. And yet we're so worried about that that we don't fully dive into Jesus. What if I can't watch my favorite show because it's crass? What if I can't watch it because they, they I don't know, just something in me says maybe I shouldn't be. What if the greatest fullness you'd ever find was in focusing first on Jesus and letting life tumble out of that rather than focusing first on life and then figuring out how to make Jesus fifth. He's offering a life we can't imagine, a come and see moment. And such an encounter should reorder our lives to where we don't worry about restrictions and regulations. We worry about Jesus and how do we best live life for him. And the rest of that stuff figures itself out. I had 12 years where I didn't take a drink because for me it was an issue. I could tie every major sin in my life for a whole season to drinking. Have an extra drink, sin, 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 sin. And there was a point where I said, Lord, it doesn't say I can't have a drink. But right now I can't have a drink. Because it's not leading me to anything good, anything fullness, anything of fruitfulness. It's leading me every single time somewhere I don't want to be. So I cut it out. Twelve years, not a drop. Did I miss it? Not a single day, because the fullness that was a result was radically different. And you come over to my house now, I'll have a glass of wine with you. Why? Because God reordered my heart. He allowed me to see something different. So it isn't about the restriction, it's that God wants us to find fullness. Second thing he wants to do is show us how to relinquish, how to relinquish control. Americans are very good at control, it's what we do best. And yet God is offering us an invitation to an adventure beyond our imagination. Our imagination as a culture is sorely lacking. I hate to tell you this, but a cruise ship is not an adventure, right? It's a consumerist detour. 90% of our vacations, think about this, just run your last vacation through this prism. 90% of our vacations are excuses to take our consumptive lifestyles into a new context for a week. I've actually been in a the Gap on Fifth Avenue in New York City and said, you know what, it's just more fun to shop in the Gap here. It's the exact same sweater that was made in Vietnam or the same jeans from El Salvador. The same Gap in Maumee is the same one on Fifth Avenue in New York City. And yet for some reason, I'm in New York City. I'm like, let's go to the Gap. Why? Because something about changing your context makes consuming things feel good again. So we go on a cruise ship and you're like, well, what did you do on your cruise? There was a guy on our flight, we were in Disney World, right, consuming down there for a while, and there was a guy on the flight uh, back, and he was explaining his cruise to the person next to him. She's like, well, what did you do? Like, was it awesome? He goes, man, it was so great. She goes, well, what did you do? I ate a little bit, then I'd lay around for a bit, and then I'd eat some more. Uh, They had some entertainment, so, you know, I'd do that, and then I'd eat again, and then we'd have a drink or two and go to bed and do it all again the next day. And she was like, what? what part of that was fun, you know? And he goes, well, it was just great. It's just more food than you could ever imagine, and the entertainment was great, and, and yet she was processing. She didn't even know it subconsciously. She's going, that's what you do every day. But it was just more fun because you were on a boat. We are addicted to our safety, to our comfort, to security. An adventure does not sound all that fun when we really think about it. We're like, gosh, I don't know. Relinquish. God wants me to give something up. How can you expect me to give up control 
I have a little experiment I'd like to try with you if you would uh, oblige me. Does ever can you get your wallet out? Just I just just hold your wallet up. I know, I know this is this is weird. Some of you have your wallet like your stuff is in your phone. Yeah, Matt's got that action. You're in trouble, buddy. So what I'd like you to do is to have your wallet and find somebody who is not blood related to you. For some of you in this room, that's really hard, but <laughs> do, do your best. Um, find someone who's not blood related to you, and I'd like you to uh, swap wallets with them just right now. Just go ahead and find somebody else and just give them your wallet. Yeah, so it's going to be good. Interesting. All right, would you, would everybody hold up somebody else's wallet now? All right, I got good news. We're going to take a special offering right now. <laughs> Feel free. All right, you can put them, for how many of you was this somewhat uncomfortable to give your wallet to someone you, you don't really know that well? For how many, I mean, be honest, right? Yeah, a few. How many of you are a little bit worried? Like, here's the thing. Here's what I witnessed. You can give the wallets back. I'll tell you this while you give them back. When I, when I asked you to give your wallet to somebody else, like 30% of the room, 30% of the room did a double take. They were like, wait, what? No, I don't think so. And then those who didn't do the double take, this is fun to observe. When you gave your wallet to somebody else, almost all of you did a double take to make sure they were still just holding it not going to rifle through it, is he? And so everybody would give their wallet and be like, I'm totally good with this. I'm okay. Even giving up a tiny bit of control makes us on some level uncomfortable. On some level, we're like, oh, I don't know. What if I'd asked them to just hold it for 24 hours? Some people are like, that's, that's okay. And other people are going, what would I do? People say, how can you expect me to give up control for, for Jesus? I order my life. And yet the scripture is saying, if God is who he says he is, if he ordered this world, if he created it, if he existed before it existed, what he deeply desires is for you to release control. What if following Jesus means losing what you love? A lot of people in this room, that's a real equation that's already been borne out. Right, what, if, what if staying true to the gospel means that I lose something that I love? Jesus is God's invitation to know what it means to feel wholly alive again. To relinquish control of life is to hand it to God. And there is something that we have all experienced. When we're not in control, but when there's a greater good happening, it's just something incredible that takes place there's a, a joy the beauty of it is jesus understands this right people go well how would you know how would i trust god with my life with my days with my finances with, how, how would i trust god with that because god already knows what it feels like to relinquish everything Jesus gets it. Jesus gave up more than we can imagine, right? Jesus stepped down from a perfect place at the right hand of the Father. Jesus showed up, was born in an animal trough to a teenage mom. The God of the universe 
chose to be an impoverished child to a teenage mom in a dung-filled stall. Jesus knows what it's like to relinquish great treasure, to relinquish great control for the sake of someone else. If we totally commit to God, we might be convicted to, like, give up cable or something. You might be convicted if you were to turn your life over to God. You might be called to move from warm, sunny San Antonio to icy Bowling Green. And I didn't plan this, but we're laying in bed last night, and my wife goes, you know what? It's the best thing that's ever happened to us. Because I never would have chosen it, right? You never, never in my wildest dreams would I have said, we're going to leave this, and all we know, we're going to go there, not even knowing what there is. And everything's frozen outside, and snow blowing, and all these things, all this new And she goes, I've never been more content because I've never felt like we're more in line with what God would have for us. It's as if giving up control has been an adventure, but created a contentedness in us that we'd never had before. Manger was not a goose-down comforter. It really, really was the picture. It's, It's... the cow and the goat, why are they there? I think the, the reason they're there in the manger scene, people say, why is there a cow? Like, that's just weird. Why is there a goat? Why, why are there sheep? That's to remind us, Jesus wasn't born into the Hilton. Jesus was born into an animal stall. And what caught him was straw, and the smell was about a lot like Hereford. It wasn't a pleasant place. Philippians 3.8 Paul says, what's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth. Everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage. The word there is skubalon, that I may gain Christ. That word for garbage, you've probably heard this before, is a profanity. Paul swears. Skubalon is a, a word for excrement or dung. We have a word like that. It's four letters. You'll figure it out pretty quick. So Paul says, he goes, I consider my life, I consider all that I've lost, I consider it garbage, I consider it scubalon compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Jesus. Consider what's happening. Our lives are in trouble, been made a mess of things from Adam and Eve on, right? We're born into sin, we're knee-deep in our own scubalon. And we have a God that in Jesus literally got into it with us. Like literally got into our excrement-filled life. You know how you know when you have a great friend and you go through something tough and, and they, don't, they don't disappear? Like the best friend you have, no matter what you go through, they walk through it with you. No matter how deep the scubalon gets, they're there. Jesus saw fit to literally be born in a dung-filled stall to know us, to rescue us, to live for us, to die for us, to rise for us. This is the thrill of hope. This is why the Christmas season is what it is. It is our annual reminder that we have a friend we cannot even begin to imagine. And his invitation to us is follow me and watch me fill you. Watch the fullness of life unfold. Don't worry about the restrictions. Don't worry about regulations. Don't worry about what you might gain or what you might lose. Follow me. Come and see what this life is about. 
Not only that, Jesus showed us the mission he's on, and he invited us not to take on a similar mission, not to figure it out for ourselves, but to join his mission. Verse 18 says he's the head of the church, which is not to say he's uh, one thing and then we're all these others. It says we've been grafted in. Scripture says we've been like plugged in, sewn into this body, and so we, we naturally just follow what Jesus is going to say to do. That there's not some big mystery we have to figure out what to do with life. It says follow Jesus. He's the head. You're just going through the motions. Is your life in a rut? Jesus calls us to a greater life, to a greater mission. Following Jesus is relinquishing me to join us. You really sum it up. It's relinquishing me in order to join a greater us. So what is the adventure that you're being called into? What might God be calling you to relinquish control of to get there? Because he offers joy. The third thing is to rejoice. We reorder, we relinquish, and then we rejoice. A deeper life and a deeper joy is on offer. Some of you are like, man, I came to be inspired about Christmas, and now I'm being challenged to sleep in a barn. And he said something about giving up cable, and it's cold outside. You know, what else am I going to do? It's not about that. It's about finding joy. Hebrews 12 says that for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. For the joy set before him, which is the same joy on offer to us. So we took our kids to Disney World, right? They wake up on Monday morning, they have no idea. It's a school day. So, I don't know if we even fed them. We were a little bit excited too. So, like, they're eating their oatmeal or whatever, and it's just a normal school day. Watching PBS kids, having my oatmeal, no big deal. And then the scavenger hunt starts and they start going room to room and the excitement builds and even then they're confused like wait what the, the page says we're going to disney world but what does that mean because that's not real and steph had to say yeah you're you're going like today to which our children mildly freak out later she off camera they're just weeping and strange emotions from these three little women you know all of a sudden i was a little confused here's the deal we ushered our kids into a whole new world which is an Aladdin reference. You'll get it later. <laughs> but they had to go. We said, we will take you to Disney World. We will show you something you've never seen before. You've never experienced it. You have no idea. You are about to be blown away by how good this is going to be. My, my seven-year-old's first question, do we have to go to school? What hotel did you choose? How did you afford this? very responsible but what's she doing she's doing what we do she starts worrying we invite her into the experience of a lifetime and she begins to worry about the regulations and the restrictions and the details and the but but what and we said shut your mouth and get on the plane right <laughs> and she had the time of her life and within a couple hours of being a little cynical let's be honest she's a little cynical about this whole princess thing uh, dad i think that's just somebody dressed up as tinkerbell and a day later, she's like, it's Tinkerbell. Let's get her autograph. <laughs> but she had to relinquish control for just a minute. And all of a sudden, she looks up. And because she trusted in someone who knew better than her, she experienced something she'll never forget. Same is true for us in Christian joy. Joy is the result of trusting the one who can do greater things than you can even imagine. And trusting the journey, even when it doesn't make sense, I'm supposed to go to school. 
You're not supposed to drive that way. You're not, that's not where we're supposed to go. How did you afford this? What about the... And I say, just get in the car. We have lost our childlike hope and the joy set before us that Jesus offers an eternity in the presence of God. We've lost our childlike joy and hope in that. And we've exchanged that for, for just like nicer junk. New cell phone, bigger TV, whatever. Those are the things that like excite us now. And this says, for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross. For the joy set before us, we can walk through this life with expectation of what's to come. It's disarming that God came as a baby. He came totally vulnerable, lived as a man completely like us. He died like a criminal, totally sinless. He rose to life, defeats death forever, offers us that life. And at Christmas, we give gifts. Partially to remember that we were first given a gift. So we're giving in response to what's already been given to us. But second, maybe as an annual reminder that we have something to give back to Christ. That Jesus asks for our hearts and our lives, and he knows it will cost us dearly, and yet he promises us unimaginable joy on the other side. At one point in the Gospels, Peter looks at Jesus and he says, hey, we left everything to follow you, as if he's kind of challenging Jesus to go, man, when is this, when is this going to pay off? In Mark 10, 29, Jesus says, truly, I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields, all your wealth, your riches, your new cell phone, for me and the gospel, will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions. It's not going to be easy. In the age to come, eternal life. Those who are first will be last and the last first. See, Peter hadn't had his life reordered yet. So when he says, hey, Jesus, we left everything. When's the payoff? Jesus basically says two things. He goes, one, it's now. You're just looking at wealth the wrong way. It's now. And two, in the age to come, you can't even imagine what awaits you. If Jesus is our God, it should cause a profound reordering of our lives should cause a relinquishing of our own selves to join his greater adventure. It should cause us to rejoice in the joy set before us. Jesus says, I came to give you life, life to the full. Not a half-life, not an empty life, full. So my hope is that we would look on with childlike wonder again, like in this last week leading up to Christmas, if we've missed it all up to this point, that our prayer would be for childlike wonder this week at the promise and grace of Jesus. I'm going to invite the band back up and we're going to start with this song called Noel, which you've probably heard before. And as I've been saying all morning, the song says, come and see what God has done. I'm going to invite you to stay seated during this song that this song might be a prayer sung over us. This last week run up to Christmas that we would really have to stop and consider what is it that God has done? This God that loved us enough to send the light of the world, not to change your season, not even to change the trajectory of your life, but to change your eternity.
And so as they sing, uh, the challenge is to come and see what God has done. And after we're done with that, Steph will stand you up. And at that point, as a family, we'll take communion. We'll remember what God has done. We'll take the bread and we'll dip it in the cup and we'll remember together. And if people in the room are your guests, you're not comfortable with that, great news. No one's watching, no one's counting. Sit and let the goodness and the words of truth wash over your life. And may this season be the season where trajectories do change and where eternities are secure. So sit, listen, soak at what God has done in our lives.